Graduation is an interesting time on our yearly calendars. It's a time filled with lots of emotions for the seniors themselves. There may be feelings of excitement over the future that is to come, and there also may be some anxiety over what lies down the road. And for the parents themselves, the parents of the graduates, it could be a time of reflection, a time of remembrance, remembering all that the Lord has done in the life of their child. But even for those of us who may not really be related or connected to any of the graduates, it can be a time for us to remember our own graduation when we walked across that high school stage. Much like Christmas or Thanksgiving, maybe we find ourselves today or during this season thinking about the past, thinking about all that we've walked through, thinking about all that we've gone through since we graduated. And whether we like it or not, graduation always comes around, just like our birthdays. And it serves as a reminder that we are one year older and that a whole new generation is rising and coming along. And perhaps this is a good time of the year to remember that we have a responsibility and that we have an obligation to the next generation. Those of us older than this generation of graduates have an obligation to fulfill. And if that obligation, that responsibility is not met, then there can be disastrous consequences. Our, our text for this morning is Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. And what we're going to see in this text is that the nation of Israel learned this lesson the hard way. They had to learn the hard way when one generation fails in their responsibility to the next. And so it describes their, not only their failure, but the consequences that followed. And so if you have your Bibles open, we're in Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, and it will also be on the screen as well. And this is what the word of the Lord says. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. The book of Judges opens up with Israel having begun taking the promised land after the death of Joshua. So Joshua is the leader of Israel after Moses has died. 
And before Joshua dies, Joshua tells the Israelites, go and conquer the land that God has promised. You see, all the way back in Genesis, God had told Abraham that he was going to give his descendants, not only form them into a nation, but give them a land. And that land was the land of Canaan. And so the people of Israel were to go into the land of Canaan and to drive out the Canaanites, the people that lived in the land. And as we see from this text that the Israelites failed to do it, whether it was from a lack of faith, whether it was being comfortable in what they had actually conquered, they did not drive out the Canaanites. And they instead lived among them. And what Scripture tells us next in verse 11 of Judges chapter 2 is one of the most frightening passages in all of the Bible. It says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. You see, during the days of Joshua, that was the time when the people lived and they witnessed the great works of the Lord. This is when they saw the walls of Jericho come down without a single sword being drawn. This is when they witnessed the crossing of the Jordan River that reminded the people of when they crossed the Red Sea with Moses. And after Joshua's generation, in the days of the elders, they remembered these great works of the Lord while also failing to drive out the Canaanites. This was a generation, the second generation, that failed to do what the Lord had told them to do. And so now, just two generations after the days of Joshua, when all these great and mighty works had been witnessed and seen, the Israelites do not know the Lord. There is no knowledge of the great works that the Lord had done on behalf of Israel. And so the question is, how had they been forgotten? I mean, how do you forget to tell someone that you saw the walls of a city come down at the sound of a trumpet? How do you forget to tell somebody that you crossed the Jordan River on dry ground? How could they let slip these memories of the great work of the Lord? The text does not give us an exact answer, but there are hints in Judges chapter 1. It would be safe to say at least part of their forgetfulness is that they failed to drive out the Canaanites. All throughout the law of Moses, the people of Israel are warned, do not allow yourself to be influenced by the pagan nations around you. When you get into the land, drive them out. But as we see, as we will see, they are going to be influenced by these Canaanites. These Canaanites who worshipped the Baals and the Ashtaroths. They were snares to the people, as verse 4 of chapter 2 says, the Israelites stumbled over the religion of the Canaanites. And so you have this generation who failed to do what the Lord told them to do, which led to them being lit, surrounded by and influenced by the Canaanites, a pagan and godless nation. Now, as Christians, we are not told to divide and conquer non-believers around us with the sword, right? That is not the call upon our lives. We are not called to physically remove ourselves from non-believers, right? We are allowed to work in places where there are non-believers. We are, however, just like the Israelites, warned frequently in the Scriptures to not allow pagans and non-believers to influence our view of God, influence our view of His Word. And this is what the Israelites 
failed to do. This is what that second generation failed. They allowed themselves to compromise on what God had told them to do. And it led them to be influenced and shaped not by the Word of God, but by the culture around them. And inevitably, there arose then that third generation. The third generation who did not know the Lord or His works. And the reason they didn't know was because the previous generation had failed to pass it on. They failed to pass down and model what the Lord had done and how His people are to live. This was a failure of discipleship. The Israelite parents failed to disciple, to raise up a new generation who knew the Lord and His works. And so then we want to ask, well, whose fault is this? Whose fault is it that a whole generation rose up who did not know the Lord, right? Everybody, all, whenever something bad happens, we all want to point the finger at somebody or something. And so the reality is the reason that an entire generation grew up who did not know the Lord was a failure on the part of the entire community. You see, some people will preach this text on the role of parents and teaching their children the things of God, how parents are expected to disciple their children. And no doubt, that is exactly what God intends. God intends for parents to raise up their children in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4-9. through nine, This is the most important verse for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And right after this most important commandment in all of the Old Testament, it's followed up with this. It says, And these words which I command you shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. See, God intends for parents to disciple their children, to raise them up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. Parents, you play an absolute vital role in your children's lives. Deuteronomy later goes on to tell us that these parents should talk of the word of the Lord when they sit in their house, when they walk by the way, when they wake up, when they lie down. As you raise your children, you are to model and teach the ways of God to them. That is part of what it means to be a Christian parent. That the word of God should infect every area of your life. But this failure of discipleship is not just on the parents. Remember, it is a failure of the entire community, the entire nation of Israel. From the very beginning of Holy Scripture, we see that the Lord has created two institutions that are to play a role in passing on to the next generation what the Lord has done. God has created two institutions for this to take place. Number one is the family, the blood family, parents. And the second institution that He has created is the gathered community, what we would call the church today. Moses commands the priests in Old Testament Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 31 to assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law. And then here it is, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Moses tells the religious leaders, you have a responsibility to teach the next generation. 
You have a role to play in passing on what the Lord has done. In the reading of the law, you are not just to remind the adults, but the children and teenagers as well of who the Lord is. These were the two institutions, parents and the gathered community. And the relationship between them is intended to be incredibly close. If you've read your Old Testament, you know that Israel was called to celebrate the Passover every year. And the Passover was the time when they celebrated and remembered what the Lord had done for them in freeing them, the Israelites, out of Egyptian slavery. And when the Lord institutes the Passover in Exodus 12, He says, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses." You see the relationship between parents and God's gathered community in those verses. The communal celebration of the Passover, when all the Israelites got together to remember the Lord in their worship service, was intended to be used by God so that when the families left, right, when they left the service, the children would ask, what was that all about? And then the parents would be able to instruct them in what the Lord had done. And so this failure of discipleship in Judges 2 is not just on the parents. It's on the entire community. Parents failed to teach their children. The priest and the high priest failed to do their religious duties and teaching the next generation. And so then we see that when that happens, when one generation fails to pass it on to the next generation, we see in verses 11 through 12, that they abandoned the God of their fathers. That third generation left and worshipped the gods of the nations around them. Now, does this sound familiar? One generation of families and churches failing to pass down the word of the Lord, resulting in this mass exodus from God and from His community, the church, as the people leave the church and go worship the idols of the nations? Does that sound maybe a little familiar to us today? Is it fair to say we have experienced this ourselves in our homes and in our cities and in our world? It's no secret that the state of faith, that the state of Christianity in my generation, the millennials, and Gen Z is in a bad place. You see, Gen Z is those children born between 1999 and 2015, just in case you want to feel old that there are people born in 2015. And that generation is considered the least religious generation yet. That the numbers of church attendance, numbers of dedication to faith are at an all-time low in those two generations. And again, people want to blame somebody, right? We'll blame the school system. We'll blame TikTok. We'll blame drugs, the government. Whoever we can get our hands on to blame about why our teenagers are like this. Why they are the least religious generation to come along. But what if the problem isn't TikTok or the government? What if the problem is closer to home? What if, like the Israelites of old, the global community of faith has failed to pass down the word of the Lord? What if the mass exodus out of churches by young people today is not kids leaving the faith of their parents, but simply continuing the faith 
of their parents. You see, what happens in Judges is that second generation compromised with the word of the Lord. And so all that third generation did was simply continue down that path. It wasn't like the second generation had some robust faith, they were teaching their kids, and the third generation just abandoned it. They were simply continuing the faith that was modeled for them. A faith that compromised where the word of the Lord was involved. So, in the hit 2007 film, Spider-Man 3, have y'all seen that one? The the first Spider-Man 3, not the second Spider-Man 3. Peter Parker, in that movie, discovers the Venom symbiote, or parasite, for those of us who uh, don't know what that means. And this Venom parasite, what it does is it latches onto Peter Parker, it latches onto his Spider-Man suit, and when it does, it enhances his powers, makes him more agile, makes him stronger. And yet, this parasite, to Spider-Man and Peter Parker's ignorance, is also corrupting him, that he becomes slowly a worse person. So throughout the history of Marvel comics, Marvel movies, this venom parasite latches onto its victims and corrupts them. It turns them into a depleted soul. Kendra Dean, in her book, Almost Christian, argues that a symbiote or a parasite has come into the church at some point in her history. And that this parasite has latched onto the teachings, onto the beliefs of many who sit in church pews or chairs today. And this parasite, at some point in the history of the church, is a false idea of Christianity that teaches five things. Teaches five things. Number one, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over life on earth. Pretty good so far, right? We can kind of get along with that. Number two, this parasite, this false Christianity teaches that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God is not involved in my life except when I need God to resolve a problem. And finally, number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Kendra Dean argues that that is like the parasitic false idea of Christianity that has somehow at some point crept into the history of the church and it's crept into the hearts of her children. And now what's scary, what was scary about the Venom stuff in Spider-Man 3 was that Peter Parker had no idea that it was corrupting him. That he thought it was making him stronger. And so in the church's history, you know, we, they may not have even realized that that was what they were modeling. From the pulpits and from the Sunday school classes, they may have been teaching what the Bible said, but the way they were living was a copy of Christianity. They may have preached that you need Jesus to go to heaven, but the way they lived made it seem like you could really just follow whatever religion, and that was good enough. They may have preached that you were saved by repentance and faith, but the way they lived was simply that if you're good enough, you'll go to heaven when you die. You see, discipleship is not just about what is taught. Discipleship is about what is modeled, what is lived out. What do people see about us? This copy of Christianity that has crept into the church is a faith that takes sin lightly and it considers grace to be cheap. It places oneself at the center of the universe and simply makes God a means to an end. It makes God a means to get happiness. 
And ultimately, it denies the reality of hell and our need for grace. And it is a sobering thought that just like the Israelites, that our churches could be one generation away from forgetting the gospel. That we could forget the good news of our Savior. And so this is all bleak, right? It's 1045 of the morning. You're like, Jack, this is so depressing. Why are you talking about this? What are we to do about this? How are we to ensure that we don't make the same mistake that the Israelites made, failing to pass on to the next generation? How can we as the church work to ensure the Word of God and the knowledge of His works is being passed down to these graduates and the generations after them? It is by doing what the Israelites failed to do, by families and churches intentionally discipling and training up the next generation. You see, this passing on is not just a responsibility of the biological family, but it is a responsibility of the entire church family as a whole. And throughout, in the past, churches with good intentions have realized this, right? And they've poured lots of money and energy into ministries and programs. They kept the youth and children busy in those ministries and those programs and events that surrounded them with people their own age. Now, again, I'm a youth pastor. Don't hear me say that youth ministry and kids ministry is wrong. If I thought it was wrong, I wouldn't be doing it. There are incredible benefits to having ministries like that, where teens and kids can be around other teens and kids and learn on their own grade level. However, the, the picture that the New Testament paints of the church assumes that church members will be living in these cross-generational relationships. That teens and kids will have a chance to be discipled and to live in relationships with people not their own age. To be trained and raised up in sound theology and biblical doctrine by other adults in the church. In Paul's letter to Titus, he instructs the older women in the congregation to model and teach the younger women. Likewise, the older men in the letter to Titus are to teach the younger men how to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul tells Timothy, do not let anyone look down on you for his young age, but he tells him to instead set an example for other believers. The assumption is that people of all generations, of all ages, are interacting in the life of a church family. Many of Paul's letters that he writes to churches were to be read when the congregation had gathered, kind of like what we're doing this morning. See, sometimes we forget that because so often we read our Bibles and we're home alone or we're in a small group Bible study. But those letters to the Corinthians, to the Romans, they were to be read when the church had gathered. And there are places in Paul's letters when he directly addresses the children because he assumes that the kids and the youth will be in the service when the letter is read. See, the Bible assumes. It doesn't command it because it just assumes it. That the church is made up of people who live in a relationship with those who are different than them. The Bible assumes that people are living in relationships from people from different races, from different cultures, and from different generations. This is what it means to be a part of a church family. A church family where the young and the old interact and can encourage one another. You see, in Ephesians 2, 
one of maybe some of y'all's favorite chapters in all the Bible, Paul describes how the gospel of Jesus Christ brings together both Jews and Gentiles. These two races that had nothing to do with one another because of the unifying power of the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit brings together these two races who were once far off. But not only does the gospel bring together those from different races, it also brings together people from different generations. Throughout the scriptures, we see that the grace of God unites people who were once far off. That the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ unites people who may have nothing else in common except that they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And in our culture today, this kind of church family that lives in these intergenerational relationships will be a powerful testimony and witness to the gospel. You see, in our culture, it's popular for different generations to view each other with suspicion, right? The younger generation looks at the older generation and all they see them as being out of touch. They don't understand. They're cranky all the time. They look at the older generation before them and just see old people who yell at clouds and are just mad. But on the flip side, the older generation looks at the younger generation with suspicion. They look down on them with their music and with the way they dress and the way they talk and those cell phones. They look down on them. There, there can be hostility at times between generations. And so in a culture like that, it is a powerful witness of the power of the gospel when a church family lives in these cross-generational relationships. When an older man meets with a teenager to read the Bible and to pray for him. When empty nesters invite a single mom into their homes to encourage her. You see, this isn't just about adults and teenagers. Senior adults can model what faith looks like to younger adults. Empty nesters can model what it looks like to be a faithful, godly parent to newborn parents. When a teenager mows the lawn for a shut-in in his or her church, these simple actions testify to a watching world that the gospel is true and that the cross is still impacting the world today, that it can bring people together from all races and from all generations. The reconciliation and relationships between multiple generations points to a greater reconciliation that has taken place. It points to a greater relationship that has been formed. See, when we live in relationship with people not like us, we point to the fact that we at one time were cut off from God, that we too were far away from Him and His mercy. But because of Jesus Christ, we have been brought near to Him, that a reconciliation has taken place. And that when we are covered in the blood of Christ and are forgiven, we no longer stand as guilty sinners, but as forgiven saints. And that when we as a church family come together as spirit and dwelt, blood-covered people, and we live in these relationships with people who are not like us, we point to our relationship with Christ. That even though we and God could not be any more different, He is righteous, we were unrighteous. He is perfect, we were imperfect. And yet a reconciliation has taken place. When we live in relationships with people different from us, we point to that reality. That the gospel is true and it is a power. And now, throughout the sermon, you've probably 
recognize that we have been describing the church as a family. And that is not a coincidence, for this is how the Bible describes the church. All Christians pray to God as their Father. Paul tells us in Romans that we have the Spirit of God and dwelling within us, that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Paul describes the church as the household of God, or elsewhere he calls it the household of faith. Christians themselves are called children of God and are commanded to love one another with brotherly affection. Finally, Jesus himself tells us that whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, when you are saved by grace, you are not just saved from sin, but you are saved into a community. You are saved into the household of God that is made up of Jews and Gentiles, white and black, young and old, rich and poor. The kingdom of God is the most diverse institution in the entire world. And so the church is a family. And like many families, there is a diversity of people, right? We all have those aunts and uncles we may not want to talk about. Um, yet for too long, churches have operated like they were at a Thanksgiving meal, right? We've all, we all know the scene. We go to Thanksgiving and there's an adult table and an adult room, but then to the side there's a kitty table and a kitty room where the kids can just stay over there and out of sight, out of mind, right? And so for too long, that is how we have approached the discipling of the next generation. For too long, that's how we have lived together as church families. We just kind of stay in our little bubbles with people who are just like us, both in how much money they make and what they look like and what they drive and how old they are. And we don't really leave that bubble. But the problem, so, and again, there is nothing wrong with youth and children's ministries. There's nothing wrong with them. But there is a problem when those same teenagers and children can't name five adults in their church. There is a problem when the older generation knows nothing about the younger generation, when the senior citizens know nothing about the newborn parents, because we just stay in our bubbles the entire time. You see, every single one of us has a part to play in passing down our faith to the next generation. Every single one of us has a part to play in being a member of the household of God. And we do this by discipling, living with and among people who are not like us. When it comes to the next generation, praying for their parents, encouraging their parents, discipling the next generation. The younger generation needs the voices and wisdom of the older generation. And again, it's not just teenagers. The newborn parents need the wisdom and counsel of older people, the empty nesters who have been there and done that. You see, Kayla and I have personally experienced the blessings of these intergenerational relationships. So my first youth ministry role was at a small church in the small town of Reedsville, Georgia. All right, there is more prisons than there are red lights in Reedsville. There's one red light and three prisons. That was the kind of, and I was just this young 22-year-old. I had no idea what I was doing. I was obnoxious, kind of like I am today. And in that church, we were two of the very, very few young people in that church. There were some Sundays when we were like the youngest people by a couple decades, right? And yet, right now, if I say the names of people like Jackie and Lisa Trim, Tara and Don Martin, Mark and Christy Foster, Glenn and Barbara Stewart, Wayman and Janice Parker, 
you would all be like, I have no idea who you're talking about. Who are those people? But to me, those are the names of people from an older generation who befriended some young, punk, 22-year-old youth pastor and modeled for him what it looked like to follow Christ. What it looked like to be a faithful husband. What it looked like to be a faithful church member. What it looked like to be faithful to Christ and to pursue God in the midst of incredible hardship. They modeled for me what it means to be sacrificially obedient and to give to whoever was in need. They were examples of what it looks like to be committed to one's spouse through the good and the bad. You see, it was because they had been impacted by the gospel in such a way that they modeled and lived in a way that showed me how to be faithful to Christ, that I grew in my faith, more so than if I was just surrounded by people my own age all the time. Because a fellow 22-year-old can't tell me how to be a good Christian at 22 years old, right? We need the wisdom of those who have been there. We need the counsel and advice of those who have walked with Jesus through the same hardships that we have walked through. The New Testament assumes, the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, assumes that this is how the church will live in relationship with people different than us. That we would be discipling people of the next generation and of different generations. And so as we kind of wrap up this morning, remind yourself that this time next year, we will once again recognize a new group of seniors. And that the seniors we just celebrated, and we'll celebrate at our senior lunch with their families afterwards, that they will have been through college for one whole year. And that 10 and 20 years from now, more and more seniors will be recognized. They are the younger generation. Will you commit yourself to passing down the faith to the next generation? Will you commit yourself to living in those intergenerational relationships that point to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will we live in the way that the New Testament assumes that we're not going to stay in these little bubbles of people that are just like us in income and the kind of cars we drive, that we are living in relationships with those who could not be more different than us. That is a picture of the gospel. And admittedly, we can't save anyone, right? We can disciple and we can raise and train people up in the next generation and they can still choose to walk away. See, many parents know the pain of that. They intentionally teach their child about Christ. They make sure they're in church, and yet at some point, they just fall away. We can't save anybody. Salvation is only given by the Lord and by the Lord alone. Our job as parents, our job as a church community, is to simply plant the seeds, to pass down the gospel that saved us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we who were once far off and separated from God, God made a way and brought us close. That we could live in relationship with God forever. Not just here on earth, but forever. Having eternal life. That is our faith. That is the gospel that has saved us. And it's the gospel that continues to save. Let us live in such a way, let us teach in such a way that points to that gospel. 